Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, we're thankful, Anna and I are thankful to be uh, at Grace in the many years we've been able to take part in the life of the body here. Uh, Anna actually started attending Grace in 2001, which was a while ago. I started attending in 2008, which I usually think was like five years ago, but it turns out it's almost 14. So uh, for the last five years, though, we've been teaching at a seminary in Manila where we train and equip students from all over Asia to take the gospel to unreached parts of the world. And then, Lord willing, in the next six months, we'll be moving to the Netherlands uh, to do the same thing. We'll train students from Asia, Africa, and Europe uh, to take the gospel to those who have not heard it before. Uh, But in our our longer sojourn in the United States, um, in the last two years in particular, it seems like there's been a lot of large-scale issues or headlines that have demanded our attention. And it seems a little bit more than normal at times. Right? There's a seemingly uh, polarized political environment going on. There's, of course, all the coronavirus issues. There's masking, not masking, vaccinations. And to keep track of all this stuff and, and to know what people, different people think and, and read up on these things can, can seem overwhelming at times. In addition to those bigger scale issues, we have you know, our weekly rhythms where we have taking our kids to school or soccer practice, we're going to work, we have concerns about our future and if we want to change jobs, and then just the normal managing of our finances. It's really easy to get distracted and we can often become just just very narrowly focused on on the day-to-day of what we have going on in our lives. And as Kenny mentioned, the last week is just kind of a microcosm of that, where we're at home and, you know, we're staying in our pajamas. And so here at the start of the year, uh, we're doing a two-week mini-series on, on lifting up our eyes on missions. And in our short time uh, this morning, it's my aim to remind us of the need of the world, to help us lift our eyes from, from the immediate things that focus and lift up our eyes to what's going on in the world, to catch a glimpse of what God is doing. And so I want this morning to be like the change in vantage point that we get when we're in an airplane, right? When we, we go up to 30,000 feet and we look down and we see our house, our street, our school, and how those fit into the, the plan of the city where we live. I hope that we can zoom out and we can catch a glimpse of God's global purpose and with hope that that will help reorient it, our personal stories within God's bigger story, that we can find our place of what God is doing in this world. Now, you might think it's easy for me to be thinking about the need of the world all the time because it's my job, um, which on the one hand, I mean, that's true, I guess. I'm more aware of the situation of the world and the need of the world because I'm constantly interacting with students every day who are from other parts of the world, uh, some that I didn't even know where they were located um, before I met them. So, so that is something I think about daily, so that's true. On the other hand, I mean, I get distracted too by, by kids' school, by my normal work routine, by what I'm doing that day. So I'm not above getting distracted by my own life and by the life of my family and what we're doing. So I understand that. I have to intentionally put before my eyes the need of the world to, be, to remind myself that God is doing something beyond 
um, what is taking place in my immediate sphere, that God is at work beyond my household, beyond uh, my workplace, beyond Grace EV Free, and beyond the United States. And so I pray that as we enter this new year that we can think anew of how we can reorient our lives towards God's global purposes in this world. And so our, our focus this morning is going to be on the need of the world, specifically outside of the United States. And some of you may be here thinking, you know, why are we talking about the world? I mean, the U.S., there's lots of lost people here. There's, there's lots of problems. And that's true. I mean, we, I'm not saying we, we ignore what's going on in the U.S. Um, and we have, as we just heard the oars share, we have a lot of grace missionaries or grace partners doing a lot of w good work in the U.S. And, and each one of us has a responsibility to make the most of every relationship and opportunity that we have. And my intent this morning is not to diminish that at all. Um, and I encourage you to, to learn what our grace partners that are in the United States are doing. There's a lot of wonderful work, as I said, they're doing. And I hope that we all can grow in our faithfulness um, to make disciples. So the goal is not to diminish what's happening here, but it's to highlight how God is at work outside of the U.S. in hopes, like I said, that it will give us that 30,000-foot view of God and his mission in the world. And by having our eyes lifted up, I hope that it will encourage us toward greater faithfulness in the here and now. And also the reason we're looking at the world is because um, the Bible tells us not to just focus on our immediate area. And many of us know after Jesus, or right before he ascended into heaven, he gave what we call the Great Commission in Matthew 28, which many of you know, where Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so Jesus himself gives his followers the task of taking the message of salvation to all the nations. But it's not just Matthew 28 where, where God and Jesus first express their, their desire for the nations to hear. All the way back in Genesis 12, when God chooses Abraham, he chooses him and tells him that he's going to bless Abraham and all his descendants so that all peoples of the earth would be blessed, that they would be brought back into their relationship with God that had been severed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And so from the very beginning, God has chosen a people for himself and blessed them so that the nations of the earth might know who he is. So yes, there are lost people in America and there are plenty of problems that we as a church want to help with but we also have the command from Jesus to go into the, all the world and not just our immediate area with the gospel. And that's the command for all Christians as well. It's not just for some. So we all have a role in the making of dis disciples of all the nations. It just differs as to what that specific role is, just like our role in the body here, that we all have a part to play in it. What we specifically do might differ. And so the last thing I want to say before diving into the heart of, of our time this morning and our passage is it can be easy to stand up here and give a lot of caveats to what I'm about to say or to give exceptions. 
And I hear them, um, I've heard a lot of messages about missions and about the need of the world before, and, and I hear a lot of these, right? So one of the common ones is, you know, God doesn't call everyone to go. And on the one hand, that's true. Um, on the other hand, I'm not going to stand up here and give any exceptions or caveats to what I'm about to say. And the reason for that is I worry that at times that um, those who proclaim God's word from up front, we can often give people excuses for why they're not to participate in what God is doing. Um, And so what my goal is, at the same time, my goal is not to guilt you into anything, but what I want to do is I want to share with you what the Bible says. I want to share with you what the need of the world is. And I want to let the Holy Spirit work in your hearts and, and lead and guide you as to what your role is in the gospel going to all nations, whatever that might be. And so that's, that's what my goal is this morning, not to give a lot of exceptions, but expose you to what the Bible says, what God is doing in the world, and let the Holy Spirit work as he wills in your hearts. So with that, let me pray before we turn to God's word. Lord, as we uh, begin this year, as we open up your word, may you move in our hearts and guide us as you so desire. Lord, may you um, use me to proclaim your word, may it be accurate, And Lord, may you open our hearts and our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so our passage this morning is going to be in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. So that's Matthew chapter 9. Let me turn there. Verses 35 through 38. And it says this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So there's just four observations I want to make about this text this morning, and they're fairly obvious in one sense. But first, Jesus looks at the crowd and he notices the plight of the people. He, He sees their need, that they are sheep without a shepherd, that they are lost and they are wandering off. So he sees very clearly that they are in need that they are in need of him, in fact. And so that's the first thing that happens is he looks at the crowd and he observes their need, that they are lost, that they are like sheep without a shepherd. Second, after he sees their need, he has compassion on them. Jesus does not see their need and immediately try to fix it, although, of course, he has been doing that, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and he's healing them of disease. But he, he has an emotional response to the need of the crowd. He has pity on them. And so when I read that, I asked myself the question, what's my response when I see my unbelieving neighbors or colleagues or family? Am I moved to compassion when I see their need apart from Christ? Now, I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, compassion does not come naturally all the time. It's something that we have to cultivate and cultivate through prayer 
asking God that God would give us his heart towards lost people. So he sees the need, he's moved to compassion. And then third, uh, one pastor commented on this passage that Jesus sees the potential in the crowd here and specifically sees the potential of lost people receiving salvation. He, he says that the harvest is plentiful so no person or situation is impossible for God to save. Jesus sees the potential of those who are lost to become his followers. And so as we see Jesus's response here, may it challenge us to hopeful imagination for what God might do when he gets a hold of a lost person's life. He doesn't just see lost people. He sees the potential for saints in that crowd. So we can have hope in the midst of seeing the lost because the lost may lead to a harvest of disciples for Christ. And then fourth, Jesus commands the disciples to pray, which is a little surprising in one sense. He comments to his disciples that there are many people who need to hear the gospel of the kingdom, but there are not many to share in the work. I mean, so far, Jesus has been the only one that's doing that. I mean, John the Baptist, potentially, if you count him, but that's still two at most. And so Jesus sees that there's a need for more people to share in this work. And so he commands the disciples to pray that God would send out more workers into the harvest. Now, interestingly, when we read right after this, this passage in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Jesus actually commissions his disciples to take out the gospel, now, or to take the gospel out. Now, this isn't the Great Commission at the end. This is he, the disciples go out during Jesus' life and his ministry to, to share the gospel of the kingdom for a limited uh, scope of time. But interestingly here, I think, the disciples are the very workers for whom they have prayed. They are the initial answers to their own prayers. Now, I say they're the initial answers to prayer because we see in the book of Acts and then we see throughout the the history of the church that God has raised up people to send out into the harvest. But I think what's most interesting here is that Jesus doesn't call them to more intense action or more effective ministry here. He points them to the effectiveness of prayer, which is not usually where I go first. Now, the reason I think he points them to prayer is that no matter how hard you work, you or I will not be able to gather in the whole harvest, right? So we need to pray to the one who can send out those who are, who, um, are needed for the harvest. Ultimately, it's God who raises up and sends out workers, and it is to God uh, to whom the harvest belongs. So in our passage, Jesus sees the need He's moved to compassion, he sees the potential for salvation, and then he directs us to prayer. And I want to use those things, uh, those four areas, to, to guide our time, the rest of our time this morning. Because Jesus said 2,000 years ago that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, is that true still? I mean, that's true 2,000 years ago. Is that still true? What, what is, in fact, the status of the harvest? Or what is the need of the world. And I want to look at the status of the harvest and the need of the world in two areas. So broadly speaking, I'm going to look at evangelism, which um, as Randy shared this morning is when we look at Grace's uh, plan of discipleship, we have engage and evangelize. So I'm going to 
lump that together in evangelism. And then um, the second area I'm going to look at is establish and equip. And I'm going to call that discipleship just for ease of reference. Now, as we look at this, I'm going to give you numbers here, primarily because they paint a picture of the situation of the world. They help us to see the vast need of the world. And you can't really do that without, without numbers, at least. But I do want us to remember, um, or I'm also going to share stories here. And I want to share stories because each person, each number here is a person, and a person made in God's image. And so I want us to not just think abstractly about numbers, but I want us to think personally as well. So if you like numbers, there's going to be plenty for you here. If you prefer stories, there's going to be something for you as well. So I'm trying to cover all my bases here of personality types. But what, um, like our passage, what I want us to see is I want us to see the need, at, uh, at least at first, I want us to see the need and I, and I pray that we could be moved to compassion as Jesus was. Uh, also, I'm going to give you the desperate need of the situation, but I also want you to see how God is gloriously at work. So as Jesus saw the great need, he also saw the potential for salvation, and so even though uh, what I'm going to share with you, some of it is bad news or sounds like bad news at least, and I hope that that gives you a burden for the need of the world, I also want you to see the great potential, particularly through stories of what God is doing in the world and overseas. So uh, for frame of reference, the current population of the world is 7.9 billion people. About 30% or almost a third of the world is considered unreached. Now, unreached does not just mean that they're not Christian. Unreached actually means that they have no access, no access to hearing about Jesus. That means they don't know another Christian. They will never walk past a church. They will never see or read a Bible. Unreached people or in groups that are unreached, it means that Christians comprise less than 2% of the population. So that means a person could go their entire lives, 60, 70, 80 years, without ever meeting another Christian. That's what we're talking about when we're unreached. So around 3 billion people in the world are considered unreached, and they will never hear about Jesus unless something changes. Now, we sometimes use unreached to refer to places in the United States And, I mean, that's okay. There's obviously lots of places in the U.S. that need to hear the gospel and need church planting among them. But just for frame of reference, uh, the city of Portland, Oregon, has a population of 580,000 people, and it has nearly 450 churches. Asansol, India, which is in eastern India, has a population of 564,000 and zero churches. Zero. That's... That's what we're talking about when we're talking about unreached. There are countries like Bangladesh where over 90% of the population is unreached. Christians, in fact, are 0.3% of the population. India has 1.3 billion people who are unreached. 88% of the population of Libya is unreached. 
98% of Iraq is unreached. 99% of Tunisia is unreached. 98% of Japan is unreached. 99% of North Korea is unreached. 96% of Uzbekistan is unreached. 99% of Iran is unreached. 99% of Turkey is unreached. A pastor from Canada in the early 1900s said, we talk of the second coming, but half of the world has never heard about the first. Now, obviously the situation has improved since he said that, but it's a third of the world has never heard of Jesus, has never heard of him and will never unless something changes. Three billion people will go their entire lives without ever hearing the gospel. And Paul says of these people that they are lost in their sin. They are hopeless apart from Christ. They are dead. They are dead in their sin. They are people who are trapped in darkness without any way out of the situation apart from Jesus and apart from someone sharing Jesus with them. To make matters somewhat worse, the long-term missionary force in the West, in Europe and in North America, has plateaued. It's essentially the same now as it was in 2000. So long-term missionaries that are going out has for the last 21 years stayed about the same in terms of just raw numbers. And then to look at another thing in terms of Bible translation, significant progress has been made, uh, but there's still 1,800 languages with no Bible. And that means no, no translation has even been started. So they literally have no Bible of any kind in their language. So that's over a billion people, over one billion people do not have a full Bible in their first language. Romans 10 says that how can they hear without the good news preached to them? Now we can modify that slightly when we think of the Bible uh, translation. How can they deepen their relationship with God? How can they pass on their faith to the next generation? How can they prove that what someone says about the Bible is true without a written Bible in their language? Now, that's the bad news. And I do want the gravity of this situation to lay on us like, like that lead vest that the, the dentist puts on us for x-rays. I want it to be heavy on us for just a second before we run to something positive. Because I want us, like our passage, I want us to be like Jesus and see the need of the world and be moved to compassion. That's what I want. There is a great need in this world, and I want us to be moved to compassion for it before we go anywhere else. But I do also want to share some good news with us. There's been a dramatic increase in church planting in the last 20 years. 60 years ago, there were about 200,000 believers who were formerly Muslim. Today, that number is about 10 million, um, although that's conservative. Because many Muslim background believers are underground, that number could be up to about 18 million. But it was 200,000 50 years ago. It's about between 10 and 18 million, which I realize is a huge spread, but that's as good as we can do right now. Advances are being made among the unreached, even though there's still work to be done. Grace has partners who are planting churches among the unreached, and that's good news. But those are numbers, right? Those are numbers, and for some of these, those, I mean, they're huge, but that may not make as much of an impact. 
But I could also tell you about one of our Grace partners who lives in a village or who lived in a village with zero local believers. Zero. They lived in, they were only foreign Christians were the only believers in their village. Or this same Grace partner shared with me about how some local believers shared the gospel with a woman who was making uh, religious charms to ward off evil spirits. This Grace partner had teammates who discipled this woman. Several of her children have come to faith. And despite some immense persecution, she has remained faithful and continued following Jesus. Or I could tell you the story about a couple who moved down to South America in 1982. They moved among a people with no written language. Their goal was to take the spoken language of the people and develop a written script. So they had to figure out the grammar and a way to write the language, which sounds impossible to me in some ways. But ultimately, their goal was then to begin translating the Bible. They had three kids in that process, and they labored in that country for 26 years. Now, 40 years later, they're in the final stages of completing the entire Bible. And within two years, they will have the first complete written Bible in the Wonka Quechua language. This gives the people there a Bible so they don't have to rely only on others to teach them the Bible. They're able to read it themselves. They can have a copy of it and read it themselves like we do week in and week out. Praise God for 40 years of labor to translate a Bible in that language for the first time. So within two years, they will be able to hold up a complete written Bible in their language. That couple, though not as young as they were in 1982, is Rick and Melanie Floyd. So I'd encourage you to talk to them later to hear stories about how God has been faithful in that labor over the years. So we've talked about the status of the harvest as it comes to um, the lost, those who have not heard the gospel, as well as those who don't have a Bible in their language. But there's another side to the harvest as well, and that would be the discipleship of those who have come to Christ in some of these less reached parts of the world. And this is where we need to realize that uh, Christianity has moved decidedly south in the last 50 years. So in 1910, 80% of all Christians lived in uh, Europe and North America. Only 18, about 18%. I'm giving you um, ballpark figures, rounded numbers here. Only 18% lived in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So it's in 1910. Today, two-thirds of all Christians live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, while only one-third live in Europe and North America. So it has shifted significantly in the last 110 years. By 2050, there are estimates that 85%, 85% of all Christians will live in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, and only 15% in Europe and North America. So the center of Christianity is not North America and Europe anymore. So it was, when we think of the history of the church, we often, the center of Christianity was Jerusalem, of course, the very beginning. Then over the years, it moves up into Rome. Uh, When we think of the Catholic church and the medieval period. But now, one book I was reading says that we should view the center of Christianity as Timbuktu in Africa, which is an actual place, by the way. (laughs) Um, 
we still have the perception, though, that the center of Christianity is in North America and Europe, partly because there's more Bible colleges and seminaries in North America and Europe. Uh, there's obviously way more money in these places as well. And also America and then Europe as well, but more America, publishes more Christian books than parts of, of then of course, Latin America, Africa, or Asia. So this random fact, but 200,000 Christian books were published in America last year alone in one year. So we can have the perception because of the vast quantity of resources and schools in North America and Europe that the center of Christianity is still here, but it's not. It has moved south. And on the one hand, that's good news, right? That Christianity has radically increased. Well, let me go back to that one. Sorry. Um, that Christianity has radically increased in the rest of the world. And what that means is the mission efforts of North America and Europe in the last 150 years have produced fruit so that many are coming to Christ in other parts of the world. And we should rejoice that the many missionaries that have been sent out, the sacrifices that have been made, sometimes with their lives, have produced fruit for the gospel. Many of the nations where we used to send out or we send missionaries to, are now sending out their own missionaries. They were receiving missionaries, and now they're sending their own out. Praise God for that, right? That's what we want to see. We want to see the fruits of our gospel efforts into the world uh, bearing fruit. And uh, where we served in the Philippines, the Philippines 60 years ago used to receive missionaries. Now they're sending their own out. And, and what I did there was train and equip students from the Philippines as well as other places to send them out. And so receiving nations are now sending nations. At the same time, there's a new challenge. Many people are coming to faith, but there's lack of discipleship because there are few who have training. Now, just to be clear, formal Bible training is not a necessity. I think you can shepherd God's flock. You can understand his word without a, a college, Bible college or seminary education. But it does help significantly because it gives focused time in learning how to interpret and apply God's word, among, among other benefits of it. A danger in many of these places in Africa, Asia, and Latin America is, uh, is heresy, such as the prosperity gospel, that are flourishing because Christians are not receiving education on how to properly study, interpret, and apply God's word, and so they're susceptible to false teaching and teaching that is not the gospel, that distorts the gospel. And so I think there needs to be an adjustment in our mindset and strategy. There is, of course, always a need for church planting and Bible translation. So hear, hear that clear. There's always a need for that. And, and I think there's a growing need for training, equipping, and discipleship of nations. Let me put this slide back up. 95% of pastors worldwide have no training. 95%. Five per, the 5% that do are typically from here, right, from America or Europe. Uh, to give you a, a specific number, over 2 million and then potentially up to 4 million pastors worldwide are undertrained and under-resourced. Grace, of course, is abundant. Grace, this church, is abundantly blessed with people with formal Bible training. And we all, we all know that. And many here who may not have a Bible degree um, or a, a master's degree, have been able to attend conferences and workshops to hone their abilities to interpret and apply God's word. And that's a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. 
that is the massive exception when we think of a wor- on the scope of the world. Picture instead, this is kind of your average situation, picture that we had to call upon the only person who had a Bible to come preach. So if you had a Bible, a written Bible, that's, that's the qualification to preach because you might be the only one with it. Or in some places, it might be the person who's been the Christian the longest who comes up to preach. That might be even if you've only been a Christian for two years, perhaps, because you're in a place where there are not really any Christians, and if you've been a Christian two years, you're kind of a senior member in the faith. That's the situation of a lot of the world. So training and equipping nationals, though, not only deepens their own faith in Christ, it helps them um, from being susceptible to heresies, which is, of course, important, but training Christians from Asia, Latin America, and Africa is also a strategy for reaching the unreached. Those who have become Christians in unreached areas can be trained and equipped for more effective ministry, um, and they can share the gospel within their own borders to those who haven't heard it before. They can reach their own people sometimes, sometimes more effectively than American might because they know the language, the culture, and then they have the relationships. They have a natural network or an already existing network of non-Christians that they know, and they can get to places where it might be difficult for an American to get a visa. Again, hear me clearly, that does not diminish the need for Americans to go to unreached areas and plant churches, and I'm thankful we have, Grace has sent people out to do that, but it does serve as another strategy. So these complement one another, right? Americans can go out to unreached areas, and we can train and equip Christians from these unreached areas to reach the unreached. So let me illustrate the challenge here and how God is raising up nationals to meet that challenge Uh, from students who I've had the pleasure of teaching before. Uh, In 1989, Mongolia had less than 10 known believers because it was under the, the former Soviet Union. After the Soviet Union fell, missionaries went in, and now Mongolia has over 50,000 believers, which is amazing to think about. However, so 50,000, by the way, is about the population or a little under the population of La Mirada. That's in the whole country. That's how many Christians there are. However, Christianity is only 1.7% of the population of Mongolia. So it is massively unreached with the gospel and in need of training and discipleship for those 50,000. There's one seminary, actually, in all of Mongolia. Um, At the seminary where I taught in Manila, we had three families that came from Mongolia. They were sent by a group of churches to be the first people in those churches to receive formal Bible training. So even, um, even the pastors of their churches had no formal Bible education. So they've now gone back to Mongolia. And this is a picture of a discipleship school that they've started in a, it's called a yurt. A yurt is the traditional housing that Mongolians live. It looks like a big brown tent. So they, ha- they started a discipleship school in a yurt and they're teaching Bible and then spiritual transformation to new believers. Uh, but they're not only discipling Christians, they're also doing evangelism and reaching the unreached as well. So these students uh, that I had, they sent me a video where they traveled out and they met a herdsman or a nomad who he migrates his cattle around to feed them on, on grass. So they met him when his motorcycle tire broke down. 
they helped him fix it, and then they drove over 100 miles four different times to where this man was, was living at the time. He had never heard the good news of Jesus before. And on one of these visits, he and his family received Christ. And within three weeks, he had shared uh, the gospel with all of his nomad friends. And so these Mongolian brothers have received formal training and they're doing discipleship of those who need to be trained. And they're also doing evangelism among those who have never heard the gospel before. Uh, Another student I had in Manila finished two years ago and he moved back to Pakistan to do ministry there. He saw the need for discipleship and training of Pakistani, so he started a Bible college. Uh, This is the first year of the school, and its mission is to equip people to lead people to Christ and build them into a worshiping community. And this is in Pakistan, where Christians are less than 1% of the population. But God is raising up Pakistanis to be workers in the harvest, reaching the unreached. Imagine the potential of each one of these students who are trained through this school to go out to share Christ with their friends and their family who don't know him. And so when we pray here, Jesus calls us to pray that God would send out more workers for the harvest When we pray, we should not just be praying for Americans, or we should not just be thinking about Americans to go out into the harvest. God is raising up workers from all the nations to reach within their borders. They're getting trained and then going out to their countries to share Jesus with those who don't know him and haven't heard him before. And so some missionaries, like my family, are going to the nations to train and equip nationals who can then reach the unreached because they have access And they can often be more effective in places where we cannot reach. And so our motto, we say, is training the untrained to reach the unreached. So I've shared a a lot about the status of the world, how many are still unreached with the gospel, how many need further training and discipleship. What I don't want this morning is for you to leave and think, wow, that's awful. But how am I going to reach three billion people? You know, that's, that's crazy. Paralysis is actually is the last thing I want you to leave with here. So I want to throw out a few, few uh, applications for next steps, potentially. And, and they're based in, in Psalm 67, which Kenny read for us earlier, um, which hopefully has stimulated your thinking. It's, it's been a passage that has been on my mind for, for probably 15 years and what initially motivated me to, uh, to go overseas. Um, We often pray at the beginning of that passage, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. But what is that blessing that we are often wanting from God? When I'm honest, and when I suspect we're honest, the blessing we, we often are wanting is ease or comfort. I want my relationships to be smooth and not in conflict. I want parenting my kids to be fruitful. I want my job to be easy. I want God to give me the finances that I think I need. But as Kenny mentioned, that's not why God blesses us. The psalm says explicitly that the reason God blesses us, or actually the reason we should pray for God's blessing, is so that his way may be known on the earth and his salvation among the nations. God blesses us so that the nations might be glad and rejoice over their Savior. Above all, 
and we helpfully read this passage in Ephesians, that God blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And we want more people from all the earth to hear about Jesus. And so I've, I've, I've mentioned a lot of numbers this morning, but the goal isn't numbers. The reason we do missions is so that people would know and worship Jesus. And, and I want to challenge you this morning to consider how God's blessing of you can be used to make his name known in the earth. Uh, a few weeks ago during our Advent series, Fred Sanders shared with us uh, about one of his points was the importance of putting ourselves into God's story and not just God into our story. And God's story is one about bringing people from all nations, languages, and peoples around his throne to worship him. And that's what we want to join in. We don't want to just sprinkle some of God's purposes into our daily routine. God's purposes should transform and reorient and shape how we live our lives. And so I primarily want to challenge you to pray, to pray about what next step God might be leading you to take. So again, recall from Matthew 9 that Jesus sees the need and he calls people to pray. And as he does so, as I mentioned, in some way the disciples were the answer to their own prayers. And perhaps as you pray about next steps, you might be the answer to your own prayers. For some of you this morning, the next step might just be learning about missions. Um, maybe you, this, the first you've heard about it, uh, maybe you don't know very much about it, so you can read a book about a missionary. There's a website called Joshua Project, and it talks a lot about unreached uh, or the need of the world. Or you can read um, what the Bible says about the nations and God's heart to reach the nations going all the way back into the Old Testament. Um, and for some of you, maybe the next step is learning more um, about um, some of the missionaries or the partners that Grace partners with and has sent out. There are many, many kinds of encouraging ministry represented among our Grace partners. Some are doing church planting among the unreached. Some are doing Bible translation. Some are doing campus ministry in the U.S. to reach college students. Some are trying to equip high school students to reach their peers. Uh, some are doing sports ministry, um, as you heard the oars, and there's a few others to, as a platform for sharing the gospel and discipleship. Some are teaching and training nationals. Some are uh, pastoring in difficult areas or unreached areas. Uh, I apologize to any of our partners watching if I missed any. But there are many great things that God is doing through Grace's missionaries. And I know you're going to be encouraged to hear some of these stories in detail. Um, even as one who's sent out, um, I'm encouraged to hear other stories of God's work among the nations. And it emboldens and strengthens me for my part in the task. I don't always have the same part as our other Grace partners, but it encourages and challenges me as well, and it, and it gives me, um, it emboldens me to continue serving and, and doing my part in that. For others, maybe you already know about missions and you know many of our Grace missionaries, but you need to take the next step in thinking more about missions. A way you can do that is to look at the different ministries our Grace partners are part of and pray, again, pray, um, about which of those God might, lead, might be leading you to partner with in some way. And when I say partner, you might just think I'm using a euphemism for giving money, and that's not, that's, uh, that's not what I mean primarily, although none of our Grace Partners would turn that down, obviously, but that's not primarily what I'm talking about here. Um, Maybe that is it, but that's not primarily what I'm saying. 
Um, wh when I talk about partnership, it means reading updates um, that you might get from our Grace missionaries so you can understand more about the realities of their life and ministry. When they return to California, you can be part of helping them with practical matters like finding a car, a place to live, hosting an event where you invite others to hear about the ministry they're a part of, offering to babysit their kids so that they can get a break. Um, it's not easy to get babysitting overseas often. Offering them assistance with practical needs like graphic design or video editing. Uh, these are all ways that I've just shared where people have so graciously helped us with in our time. Um, and when people, when our partners are overseas, it means not just reading their updates, but responding to them, giving an update on how you're doing, uh, telling them that you're praying for them. What I'm trying to do here is I'm not trying to be comprehensive in this list, by the way. I'm trying to give you ideas to stimulate your thinking for how you might partner with, with grace missionaries that's not just financial. Again, God can lead you anyway, maybe one of the ways I've mentioned, or maybe a way that God moves in your heart and you think that that's a helpful way or something that one of our partners needs. So I'm just trying to stimulate your thinking with different ideas because in viewing partnership in this way as helping in tangible ways, you're getting actively involved in their team and in whatever ministry they're a part of overseas. So you're joining with them in the task of making disciples of all nations and sending out laborers into the harvest. And what I want to emphasize at the end here is there's a danger here is I, I don't want you to leave here feeling guilty uh, about your lack of participation in, in what God is doing overseas. Ultimately, the reason for that is that won't last, right? I mean, you leave here, you might feel guilty, and then if you're like me, the onslaught of the week comes tomorrow, and lots of other things are on your mind. But what missions is really about, what, what, what partnering with, God, with what God is doing in the world, what compels people to sell their possessions and move overseas and stay there, and what compels people to partner with them is simple. It's the love of Christ, right? Loving Jesus so much that you want others to know him in the same way you do and be transformed in the same way that you have. Isaiah 33 has this, has this beautiful image where he says, one day our eyes will behold the king in all his beauty. And we have a glimpse of Jesus in all his beauty now. And one day we will see it more clearly and we will see the king in all his beauty face to face. And we want others to join us in doing that as well. And that's what lasts the love of Christ and wanting to behold him and bring others along to behold him as well. That lasts way longer than guilt. And as you see the, the, the need of the unreached, the love of Christ compels you to pray about what you can do because we see ultimately that Jesus' words are still true. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I want to close our time with the words of a hymn which was written um, by one of the early missionaries to go to China in the 1800s. And he said this, Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. 
O Father who sustained them, who sustained those who went before us, O Spirit who inspired, Savior whose love constrained them to toil with zeal untired, from cowardice defend us, from lethargy awake, forth on thy errands, send us to labor for thy sake. Let's pray. Lord, those words that you spoke 2,000 years ago remain true. There are many lost in this world who don't know you and will not have the opportunity unless someone goes. Jesus, forgive us for the ways that we forget the lost around us and in the world and, and how we remain focused just on ourselves and our own lives. Forgive us for the, the ways that we seek comfort and ease instead of the path of sacrifice that Jesus demonstrated for us. Lord, you have abundantly blessed us, not so that we can live in, in, in comfort and convenience, but so that your name may be proclaimed in all the earth. May you grant us boldness to proclaim the gospel to those around us. May we have a heart of compassion for them as you did. May your spirit guide us and lead us as to how we can join the work you are doing in the world. May we not leave here unmoved by the needs of the world. Let them not just be a number that we forget about, but may we reorient and orient our lives, our time, our finances, our schedules to keep the needs of the lost before us. Lord, we pray as Jesus commands us that you would raise up an army of those from this church, from this city, from this state, from this nation, and from those nations around the world that you would raise up workers for the harvest to take the light of the gospel to those in darkness. Lord, may we be encouraged by the stories that we hear of that, and may we seek ways to hear those stories so that we can be encouraged and, and challenged and exhorted to continue to do the same. And Lord, we ultimately we pray for love of, of Jesus, that that is what may inspire and sustain us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.